Welcome to the Feel Strong Fitness Podcast. Feel Strong creates one-on-one solutions for committed people without wasting time or compromise. We build and rebuild motivated individuals using programs designed exclusively for them. Hey, hello, and welcome to the Feel Strong Fitness Podcast. Feel Strong creates one-on-one fitness solutions for committed people without wasting time or compromising. We build and rebuild motivated individuals using programs designed exclusively for them. On today's podcast, we have Linda Morgenthaler. Linda is a one-on-one coach. She is entirely remote, went from in-person to being remote. She's also a mentor. Linda is also my mentor through Active Life. Linda also has a fascinating training experience leading up to being a one-on-one coach, which makes her incredibly unique. Today, we talk about emotions, values, and what makes a great coach. I'm very excited to share with you Linda Morgenthaler. Linda Morgenthaler, welcome to the Feel Strong Podcast. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate your time, especially coordinating. Listeners may not know, but you're in Germany currently, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes. So playing across seven time zones is always a little bit of juggling. So I really appreciate you making time of your day. Well, in that case, I appreciate you're not living in Hawaii, right? That would be even more complicated. Even more challenging. If we're doing this in Shanghai, it would really, (laughs) both of us would be a little uncomfortable. So I know a lot about you. We spent time both one-on-one on calls and in group calls, but I don't know if everyone listening does. Could you give us the, the two minutes all about Linda? Sure. So I started farther away from fitness than you could imagine. As a kid, I wasn't into fitness. Only did that when I graduated high school. Kind of thought, oh, I should get fit. Taught myself. So that was kind of my entry into coaching and training methodology, but decided to go to uni, studied economics, started uh, what's generally considered successful career, and only later picked back up on the passion, found that CrossFit box ran up to three boxes for eight years, and then kind of segued from coaching group into coaching and solving individual problems and really going deep instead of going wide. Did a degree in Switzerland that combines the physical side with the psychological side as a therapist and was really planning to go deep also in an in-person setting. But then Corona came around and we all know that changed a couple of plans. And I decided to A, move country move from Switzerland where I grew up to Germany and B, go fully remote with all that I was then doing. Was it coaching people out of pain with more training methods or the therapy part that I was working on? That is quite a journey, certainly not a straight line. Yeah, but that's how you find your line, right? And sometimes... You might have had the line and then you have to acknowledge things changed. I have changed uh, and it's totally okay. And it's sometimes funny for me because my wife, she's German. She feels like the Swiss change careers more drastically than here in Germany. We've never quite figured out why, but those stories where you go from doing one thing to exactly the opposite, Usually it goes down to really digging deep on your passion and and what you burn for and feel for instead of just chasing the money. Yes. And that maturing, like as usually, because I have a lot of people, including myself, who I like and respect and are very good at their jobs and started doing something significantly different than what they're doing now. You can often find overlap where they're related in the way that, oh, you're, you were very good in this field it makes sense that those skills also translate very well to this field, but often miles apart from each other, you know, in sort of category wise, you know, like the, I have friends who from my showbiz career who are microbiologists and deep space physicists and like really fascinating stuff that you would say, well, this doesn't, these, these are so different, right? 
until you get down to the actual nuts and bolts of how these things work and managing teams and thinking on the fly and coming up with innovative solutions that people haven't really thought of before. And suddenly you start understanding why someone who would be very good in a high stress corporate event setting would also be very good in a well-renowned physics lab. And those things actually make sense in a way that you wouldn't necessarily translate from afar. Yeah, yeah. I think if you put the the bits and pieces together later, it all makes sense. Like looking forward, it's kind of hard to put things together. You're Often when you're changing careers, you're like, I have no clue if this is going to work. But then looking back, it usually makes sense. And we can usually say, well, it all led me to where I am now. And I'm, I'm glad for it. Now, I'd like to hear more about this Swiss program that you did. What was the well, what is the program? And then I'm going to ask you what the inspiration was for getting there. So the program translates to an energetic kinesiologist. It does not have a lot to do with the kinesiology degree that's known over here. It has more to do with traditional Chinese medicine and their approach to basically believing that we're a system of things that if given the chance, would like to correct itself and regain homeostasis, we call that the state of balance of things where you feel good, perform good, all those things, right? There's a couple of points in your life when you look back, it's, it's like everything was going well. And you just like, everything lined up, you had your act together. And I kind of relate back to that, right? Body's the same way. If it can, it's just going to make sure everything works together and works out and you're pain-free. And what was the inspiration for starting that program, coming from owning multiple CrossFit boxes? and? So I kind of figured I was not solving people's problems. I looked at the people I was coaching and yes, you have the 90% who are super happy, they're performing great, they're making improvements. But then I kept looking at the other 10%. And for me, it felt like we're not solving the root cause of your problem. You're just here and you're enjoying it because you don't have to think of other problems, right? My pet peeve is this big thing that gets handed around. Working out is my therapy. I hate that. It's not. It's not the same thing. Working out is not and should not be your therapy. Because what happened most of the time with those people that I was coaching, they just like step out of their issues while they were training. But if you haven't solved them, you just walk out of the gym and you walk right back into what you've just tried to get away from for the last hour, hour and a half. I just realized I wasn't satisfied. I was like robbed the wrong way by trying to help them, but always knowing I'm not helping them. And I realized I probably might have to go into a different direction than just coaching a class that I'd be able to do that. Yes, it sounds you were certainly helping them, but you wanted to help them in a bigger, deeper, more meaningful way that translated to the rest of their life a little better. Yeah. I've absolutely told people in group classes, you know, ideally the best outcome for this is you can leave all of your problems and stresses at the door, take a break for an hour, come in here and focus on you and we'll do the best work we can and, and everything we can. When you walk out that door, you have to pick them all up again. I can't fix those problems in here, but we can potentially take a break. And I completely agree with you. Working out is great and therapy is also great and they are different things. Yeah, totally agree. And sometimes it can work out for you, right? I've had multiple people, for example, coming back from burnout or psychological things that, that found their footing again, right? Through working out, not necessarily going for therapy. So I'm not saying, hey, everyone with problems needs to go to therapy. No, it's in the end, you just have to give yourself the space and time to think about what is the underlying thing, what emotions 
am I dealing with and where are they coming from? And I think that's a really big thing right now in society is that let's just go and work out and forget them, turn them off, and then you have to come back to them. Because the same thing kind of happens in, let's say, in your career, professional life. It's not the place and it's not okay for you to go through your emotions, right? And a successful businessman is usually portrayed as don't show much emotion, hardline, they have no private life, and it's all rid of any emotion. And even if we're left to ourselves and we have a minute, right? Everyone takes a phone to the bathroom or when you're waiting at a bus station, have a look when next time you drive past a bus station, how many people have their heads down in the phone? And nowadays, you probably think like someone's crazy if they're not looking at their phone at the bus station. What's that psycho doing over there? He's not occupied with his phone. Is he planning something? I just read the the summary of a study that I have not read the entire thing, but basically it was people were left alone in a room for not, it wasn't more than 15 minutes. I think it was like eight to 15 minutes and given the opportunity to sit in silence with nothing around, no stimulus, no, certainly no electronics, no, or they could sit there for the same 10 or 15 minutes, but be administered random electric shocks. More people chose the electric shocks than being alone with themselves. That's crazy. If you think about it. Yes, it's terrifying. Anything to feel something. Just don't leave me alone with my thoughts for a moment. Yeah, because like being alone with your thoughts and going deep, it's it's not easy sometimes. And usually it's kind of uh, the more you do of it, the deeper you get, the more rewarding it would get. But that stuff is hard. Just like any bigger goal gets hard, right? The, the easy stuff, that's usually okay, right? If your scale of emotions, let's say it's sad and happy, well, that's, that's fairly easy, right? But within happy, there's such a magnitude of why and, and are you happy because this makes you feel accomplished or are you happy for a completely different reason? And what that means to you can go widely into any direction then, but you still say it's happy. So I see it like if you've ever done like wine tasting or coffee tasting uses the same thing, that this circular thing with like all the different ways a wine could taste or shouldn't taste in some cases. I think it even goes to cat piss at some point of the, it goes from fruity it goes everywhere but imagine you had 60 different emotions that have something very specific mean something very specific to you and now i'm not going to tell you i'm happy i can describe it a lot more closely right and i can figure out what's going on then because i bet we've all met these people in the gym or we've been those people in the gym and I'll raise my hand. You finish your workout and you start crying. And it's not necessarily you're sad or where does it come from? So let's rewind quickly. Where does it really come from? When you work out, your stressed levels, they go up from working out, which we want, we want to stress our body, like in a good way, a you stress, if you so want, not a distress, and then it will later adapt, right? But if I, in the example of walking into the gym from all my other hundred problems, already have a cup that's almost filled to the brink, and now I add this working out stress, it's just going to overflow my cup quite literally, and tears are streaming out of my eyes. If I brush this off, like most of us are taught to do or have learned to do, I, I might never figure out what, what brought me here, and I'll never have the ability to work through and potentially put myself in a better place. Maybe 
I just do that long enough so that I kind of numb down to it and I kind of get over stuff. We do get over stuff with time, but you could also choose a more active route, right? And that could start with that wheel of emotions and just asking yourself, what are those tears? What type of tears? Am I relieved? Am I sad? Which direction does it take? And I think that's where most of us need to still do a lot of work. That's what I saw when I had people in the therapy sessions. Some are really good at describing where it comes from, what's behind it. That enables you to go forward. Let's take an example. When your grandpa died, yes, you're sad, but why? Are you sad because you're missing out on, on future talks with him? Or are you sad because you feel you didn't use the time with him? And, and all the spectrums in between. And when I am able to figure out why I'm sad, I can either cherish what I had or make sure that I do it differently next time if I'm sad about missed opportunities or if something else comes up, I don't know what it is. That's where therapy starts, right? Where you kind of work through and some of us prefer to go and work through things fairly quickly. Others deal with a lot of the stuff ourselves, but I think it all starts with just being more aware of what's behind the emotion and where would that lead me if I allow myself to think about that. Now, having that experience of, and I've certainly had it too, of working out, or especially like you described, finishing working out or finishing, I'm, I bring brought back to my father has run many, many dozens of marathons and I've been there for a bunch of them. And it's a very common sight at the finish line of marathons for someone to cross the line, stop, put their hands on their knees and burst into tears. It's just incredibly normal, like dozens and dozens of people doing this and you watch it happen. And I think you're right that they're, they're tipping over or they have already tipped over. And that's the moment when they can have that emotional release for people, because a lot of people listening, it tends to be athletes and coaches on the other end of our voices on this podcast who want to continue working out on whatever their schedule is, three, four, five, six times a week. I suspect they've all had the experience of working out and feeling some other emotion, either being distracted by something. They're thinking about something at work or their life or stress, being upset, being anxious, and they find it very distracting. And I think the move is often to kind of push it down and push it away. Is that more useful and then potentially trying to deal with it afterwards? Or are there strategies for working with this while you're trying to do this other physical thing, focusing on yourself that is working out? I love that question. And, and there's not really an easy way to answer it, but I hope I'm going to make sense. In some sort of way, when you're finding yourself having to push something away, it tells you you've already been dealing with it too long or pushing it away for too long. I'd say in optimal state, you'd have worked through most of the things. So if you find yourself pushing something back, it should be an, a one-off occasion, right? Maybe something really fresh. You just got a text or something. And for both, right now is probably not the right time to do anything. So pushing away is probably the best option. I think it's just important to take note and, and keep score, kind of. And that's something I try to dive deep on with anyone I work with. Is it a coping strategy of yours to keep pushing things away? Also, is working out the only way that you can push something. Now suddenly you have a coping strategy that relies heavily on being able to work out. And I often work with people where something hurts and they need to dial back on the volume or what they're doing or the type of workouts they're doing. 
And now suddenly you're caught in this wheel. You need to work out to compensate for what's going on in your life, but you can't or shouldn't because something's hurting. And that again puts more pressure on the stress you're already feeling, but you can't work out and things just get worse and worse. So especially when I work with those people, I work heavily on A, acknowledging that this is your coping mechanism, unloading that I need to do that to cope. Can we find something else? Is there anything else that brings you joy or do do we have to find you a hobby? Something to fill that void where you used to be able to turn off for that hour. But if that situation keeps being loaded by, I need to work out. When I have stress, I have stress, I need to work out more, but that causes stress on my shoulders. It's a one-way street and usually it doesn't go well for people. So just acknowledging that, taking loads off that situation sometimes helps with the physical pain too. Because it's suddenly not the, I need to, I have to, to deal with the other 23 hours of my day. You find different outlets and then suddenly when you still get to do that hour or get to do it again, it can be just working out again. Imagine that if you can work out just for fun again and not because you have to forget something, not because you feel like you have to burn the calories, but just for the fun sake of being present in your body and moving it and and seeing all the wonderful things that your body can do. I was just going to say exactly that. It's like helping people. And something I found in my work a lot is helping people kind of rediscover that training can be fun again. Typically people who've been doing this for a long time, years and years and years, and it has to one degree or another become something they have to do. It's it's certainly, and that's not necessarily bad. Like if working out is part of your personality and people know you as the fitness person, that's not a bad thing. Everyone is known for something. But what you're describing is asking this, this hour of your day or this session to carry so much. It's doing this movement work. It's doing this physical work. It's doing this capacitive work. It's doing this functional work. It's doing this emotional work. It's doing this, like, you're asking so much of this hour that if any tiny chink appears in that armor, suddenly things start falling apart. Whereas if your toolbox is a little deeper, and this might involve also your movement workout toolbox getting a little deeper and wider, you can deal with these things in other ways and only ask a squat to be a squat and help, you know, challenge your posture and work your legs and, you know, make sure that your bracing is good and not also deal with the issues you're having with your significant other. That's not fair to the squat. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that's not fair to the significant other, but it works both well, that ways. Too. <laughs> I'm really worried about the squat in this circumstance. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's, it's kind of the way our society has evolved the last decades. Right? I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. So I, I'm originally Swiss and I came to the States for a year as an exchange student when I was 16 or 17. I, I was fluent in English or somewhat enough, right? But not particularly in how the language gets used. So first day, I'm at my locker, really fascinated by those lockers because we don't have them in school. And the guy, my next door locker neighbor comes up and says, hey, hi, how are you? Oh, they're friendly here. And I'm like, in my head going through, how am I today? And it took me a little bit because I'm not used to being asked that. We just say hello in our language. So I got my answer together and I'm ready to answer him. And he'd already turned away and walked off. And I'm like, wait, what just happened here? Didn't he ask me, how am I? And it took me a while and a couple of these... Uh, greetings to find out it's not actually a how are you feeling today it's more as a hello hi hi there and yeah it's a perfunctory greeting they are they aren't actually they might be listening but they don't mean it 
Yeah, but I think it's kind of telling for the society we live in. Because even if I were to answer, most of the people are either not interested or not able to cope with anything other than a short good thank you. Now, that ties into dealing with other people's stress and emotions really well, which is something I, I had a recent guest. It was a grief coach, Mandy Capehart. She's lovely. And we spent some time talking about how people are generally fairly poor at dealing with other people's emotions. And I think it's that sort of idea, you know, asking people how they are, but being unprepared for anything other than positivity, goodness, maybe like a cute, good story. But I don't actually want to hear about the heavy lifting you're doing today, mostly because I may well be interested and I may even be empathic, but I'm not actually prepared to deal with it. We don't have a lot of constructs for how to deal with other people's emotions. Yeah, I think sometimes we overthink it. We think we need to help or solve something. And I'm not free from that. When I went into my education to become a therapist, I thought the same way. I'm going to be talking to people and I'm going to be offering solutions. And that's also why I hated therapy. Because my idea of therapy was like that Freudian, he's sitting somewhere behind you, you don't see him, and he's going to offer these weird interpretations of things that I have never thought of that way. But there's also this different strain, and it's called the more humanitarian approach um, to therapy, where we generally believe the solution and the answer is in the client or in this case, in the person talking to you. So I do not have to going into a solution and listen, this is what I did. And then this made me feel better or trying to analyze what's going on. I could simply as a participant in that conversation, go back to that big wheel of all the different tastes a wine can have and just ask them type of sadness or why are you sad? Can you describe that? And just like guide them on their way to kind of make, make more sense of, of what's going on and kind of get, give depth to something that's usually just overwhelming, right? The runner at that finish line that first second or two that's just overwhelm and you probably can't say what it is exactly you need time but if asked the right questions if just like being mirrored what you're saying and, and hearing yourself say it that starts a process where you enable yourself to think of what is it exactly depth of sadness is it and i think she brought that up too but that movie inside out where the girl has these five emotions in her head and the memories that is like the perfect description of how we kind of work it's it's not always i cry i'm sad it it has a depth it has such a wheel of taste to it and it can go one way today and can be another tomorrow but as you work through things the tendency should be less of it that's usually a sign for us that you're working through something when i'm speaking to someone who's just recently had a death of a family member and then anytime they tell you any story involving that grandpa they become sad that's natural that's just the beginning right but as time goes on and three six months pass they're able to tell you stories that are happy and they're just that and yes there might be a scale of sadness or remorse that i don't get that opportunity anymore but the depth of emotion and the way it comes over you changes. And that's ideally what you want to have happen in, in the working out example too, right? That you need to do less of pushing away 
and less hard of a pushing away. And that resonates with anyone. I mean, I love it when these things go so one-to-one and I find more and more as I have these conversations, they do. With working out, everyone knows that if you, you know, push 20 pounds over your head and you do that every single day, on the 60th day, it's going to be significantly easier than it was on the first day. It's not a straight line. Day 24 might be really hard for some reason. But if you keep working at this and keep doing the work, it gets better and you grease that groove and you understand this mechanism. I also want to highlight something you said, especially for any coaches listening, that a big way to solve people's problems is to not necessarily offer your solution right away, but to ask more and better questions. And that will do a couple things. I think it's really helpful to actually find the solution, whether you're after an athlete's goal or trying to find the root of the the emotional problem that they're working with right now, or even just paint a better picture for yourself so you can help them in whatever way. But it also takes the pressure off you to be some all-knowing guru who someone tells you one thing and it's, you know, I feel this way about that or, oh, my shoulder feels like this when I do this movement or whatever the thing is. If you jump on it because, oh, I, I took this, I just read this thing three weeks ago about external rotation and that always means it's, you know, the C, it's in your C3 and, oh, it's medial nerve. We're doing medial nerve stuff. You're like, hold on, buddy. Like, maybe, but ask a couple questions First of all, you'll build credibility because people will start realizing you know what you're talking about when you ask good questions. That's much more likely to happen. And you'll get more information. And the person will get more information too. If they have to think about these things, if they are just, well, I'm I'm sad in the afternoons. I'm just sad in the afternoons. And we can start digging into what that even means to be sad in the afternoon and the many things that lead up to it and that contribute to this, or the same thing with shoulder pain. Okay, well, you say that, but how do you feel when you wake up? Oh, how do you sleep? What about these activities? Because you use your shoulder in all these other ways. Oh, interesting. So it's only when we have this amount of volume or this kind of stress or at this speed or now you're actually getting somewhere and you are doing what I think is far better coaching or even being a far better friend than trying to be some sort of all-knowing guru who has the magic canon and all the magic answers hidden away. Yes, that interpretation level, that's always on your side, right? And you might go in the complete wrong direction. If they they tell you the shoulder hurt, you might have a completely different idea of what that means. Just as when they tell you, I work out to be a good example for my kids, what you link to that, the sensations and emotions that you link to that might be completely different to what they're doing. So ask them, what does that mean to you? Why is that important to you? And if you feel like you have a grasp, be careful that you word it as that. I think I'm understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that working out to be a good example for your kids so that they learn being active is an important part of growing up, exploring the world is important to you. Is that what you're telling me? And then they can say yes, no, but be careful and just like, putting your idea and your interpretation over what they are saying or what they are feeling, right? And that happens too when you see people crying. You think they're sad. They might not be. The runner, your dad at the end of the marathon, he might just be super happy because he started cramping at mile 10 and he thought he'd never run a marathon in his life ever again. And he's super happy that he made it. But in that moment, you can't be sure. And that's where your confusion starts. Imagine I already have an interpretation of what's going on. And I have a solution based on that interpretation, which I'm then trying to convey to the person. It's going to make you super uncomfortable. 
And it's probably not going to be super helpful for the other person. And I'm sure we've all had that situation when we got advice, maybe unsolicited, that's a hard word, or asked for, and you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no. You have like that extreme reaction of, no, never, ever would I do that. And to spin that back to coaches, imagine the level of buy-in on those different scenarios, right? When you implant your interpretation, your solution, or when you're asking them along and you're taking them by the hand and saying, so I think I understood that this is important to you. And I think I understood that you really want to go back to doing this. So I'd like for us to be working on this, in this setting, in this volume, because that's going to be enable you to yada, yada, yada. And then suddenly you've created a common path that hopefully aligns to just what they want. And spending time clarifying what they mean, as you just said, will make sure you're both on the same path and avoid that thing you just described, which I've absolutely been guilty of, of me holding forth for five minutes about how I understand the problem, what the solution is, and I'm way off. And this person is just waiting for me to stop talking so I can, so they can either tell me I'm wrong or, you know, grit their teeth and get through this and never come back to deal with this dummy who wasn't listening in the first place. And understanding what those words mean. I think, you know, certainly coaches, but I bet athletes have all had the experience of having someone where they do a movement. You say, I had that feel. Oh, that hurt. Or that was okay. Or that was really hard. And you might watch it and it looked, in all three of those examples, it looked great. Oh, you, you didn't move like someone who was in pain. You didn't move like someone who was hurt. You didn't move like someone who was working very hard. And all of those might require more digging into to, well, what do you, what do you mean? Okay. When you say, when you say it hurt, like, what does that mean? Oh, well, it's just, it's, it's all weird. Something's like clicking in my shoulder. Oh, okay. That's a very low, that's like a green to yellow light for me. Any pinching discomfort? Did you want to stop? If I asked you to do three more, how would you feel? Does it, do you notice this during the day? Like getting into it, like, oh, actually like we're, and maybe 20 minutes later, we are now out of pain and doing heavier weight and moving great and we're very happy or as opposed to oh it was this pinching pain that ran up the back of my neck and I, I got really dizzy for a minute there oh hard stop sit down we're going to talk about this we're not touching that piece of equipment for the rest of the day and we really have to get into it or the person who's working hard we, I think if you've ever worked with newer athletes I know you have but people listening you you've seen someone you know back squat for an easy example and come up and you're like, oh, that was that was light. They've got so much more in the tank. This is going to be fun. And they put the bar down like, whew, that was incredibly hard. I need to sit down. I don't think, oh, I've never done anything like that before. And they're not lying to you, but it, it's, their, it's the truth of their experience. And you can dig into what that feels like, not necessarily to talk them into doing more, but to understand what it feels like with this stimulus and give them other ways to reach that so they can st start reframing their understanding of what hard is, which is also reframing their understanding of what they're actually capable of. And I think that is one-to-one -one with emotional depth and being able yes, to I deal with it. it applies on, on both situations. So then that strength back squat example can be the same for when you're there, when your friend's crying. But I think you said something really interesting in that example because the client's subjective feeling is always to a degree right in as what are they experiencing i might be seeing three perfect executions of back squats but it feels hard it feels strange for them acknowledge that right if you completely brush that over because you've ver verified it looked good there's no weird sensations running up the neck etc oh we're all good you're going to lose them in the process. But the second thing that you said that's really valuable, because I checked my list of things that shouldn't be going wrong and 
no red lights flashing, I'm confident that they're safe. And I'm confident to keep showing them that they can trust in this process and that they can build their, ooh, I feel really weird when I do this back squat up to a super confident lift. So both needs to go into the solution. You acknowledging how they feel and, and, and if it's a four out of 10 pain on a 10, one to 10 pain scale for them, it's just that, it's a four out of 10. You might later learn as you're working with clients that the four can be radically different from person to person. But what it tells you for them, it is a four. And if someone tells me they're a six or they're a two, the taking them by the hand and guiding them process is going to look completely different, right? Very much so. And that takes experience and a lot of listening to determine the differences there and to let someone kind of work through that stuff. If you aren't doing that, I would, as a coach, start to question the value of you being in the room at all. Because this is some, if someone is going to give you information that you couldn't get from them just putting themselves on video, why do you need to be in the room with them? And maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe like, oh, you could do this on your own. And like, I have lots of remote clients, as I know you do too, who don't need me in the room for lots of reasons. But if you think you need to be in a room with someone and you're not interpreting what is going on kind of in real time, that's one of the most valuable things about being in a room with a good coach is things should change and adapt and flow around exactly what's actually happening. If you're not doing that, I think you need to question why you're in the room with this person. And on the other side, if you're an athlete who this sounds like the coach you're working with, you know, there's better coaches out there. So you should possibly look around. Uh, to slightly take a right turn, but staying with sort of emotions and athletes and performance, I feel like there's people listening who this would be occurring to them. People have lots of emotions around how they perform and certainly like their self-worth often tied into, I have a number of people who it's tied into certainly what they're doing right now and how well they're progressing toward their goals and day-to-day, week-to-week, whether it's performance or looks or weight or, or whatever the thing is, but it's often also tied into previous performances, aesthetics, body types, careers, that kind of thing. Does that have any resonance with you in this field of dealing yes, with people and emotions? So. It's something I encounter a lot. I do now think it's really, it's highly individual. So what, what I can really speak to is, is my journey or ongoing journey in this thing. And um, this does not mean that anyone else's journey is similar, but you can kind of see what the process was for me to kind of figure out um, how to go forward. And being good at the gym, performing as I did five years ago, it's kind of the same way as how many likes did a post get, right? It's, I'm looking for recognition. Mostly it's external, right? If... I just wish I was back at my 120 kilogram back squat because I know and it felt really good for me. You might argue that's internal recognition, but it's still kind of, it's the same exchange of, I admire you, I'm proud of you for accomplishing, in that case, the number 120 or many likes. When I unraveled this whole thing and really took the part of what are the emotions I'm looking for, the recognition, love, and linked it back to why do I think it's tied to a number? What I found is that, and this started really early when I was like 10 years old, the way I grew up, it was kind of that setting of you do really well in school, we're really proud of you. And I ingrained that. People are going to be proud of me and love me if I do well. And at the start of my career, it was that successful career. 
in the gym it was later the numbers. I was good in the power lifts, so I competed in power lifts. I loved the people said I was good at it. I was shit at CrossFit. I didn't really <laughs> do good in the open, so I didn't put myself out there too much. But I loved doing it on the powerlifting side. And looking at that, it showed my, my own cycle, right? And what I had to work through is love, acceptance, you being well-liked by the people that are important to you is not tied to any performance, to any number, to a good Instagram handle. The right people should love you even if all you do is literally get in trouble, do not have your act together, living on the street, it should be not tied to anything material, performance-wise, any number. And once you get there, to take something apart to that level, then it was possible for me to step away that performance. Because I understood where it was coming from. And I also understood if I don't relearn that you can be loved without a performance link to it, it, it's not substantially going to change. I might be able to, oh, I'm not at 120 kilograms anymore. I might be more to 100 nowadays. But it's still kind of, I feel better when I get the 100 today, right? I might adjust that a little bit. But for me, it's still the same process. I'm I haven't worked through. I've just like pushed the number down by 20 kilograms. Maybe it helps enough that I feel good, but I'm still in the same cycle. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think that's going to resonate with a lot of people who maybe to some degree or other are working on moving away from some of those metrics valuing themselves. And I think something you said is that you mentioned earlier is beautiful about how you feel about someone else should not be tied into any of these material things. And I think for a lot of people, that, that would be easy. If they're thinking about a friend or a loved one or a family member, someone they care about, well, of course, I don't, if they lift this much or this much or are this fast or have a six pack or like none of these things are reasons why I care, frankly, more or less about them. If they're proud, I'm also proud of them and I admire what they're doing, but that's not why I love them people have a very hard time turning that around and feeling the same way about themselves because they have put these external things around them as the reasons why they are worthwhile to the world and maybe therefore toward themselves and not being able to look in and say, well, I'm a, a wonderful person for all these other reasons or even just admire the effort. I talk about this with people when I hire a new client. It's one of the, one of the agreements we make, right? I, don't, I am somewhat indifferent to your performance. If you want to get stronger, I want to get you stronger. If you want to get faster, I want to get you faster. So I will care because of that. But I'm not going to have strong emotions when you show up on a day and run a six-minute mile versus a seven-minute mile. If you show up and don't try, now we have a real problem. Now, now I'm concerned, but I, I'm going to ask you to bring whatever effort you have to give that day to this situation, and that's going to be the best version of you for today. And we'll celebrate that and work around it and adjust and, and do all of those things. And people are terrible at doing that yeah, for we, themselves. Yeah, we kind of not measure ourselves to the same standards as we do the others, right? But it's kind of okay. Evolutionary. We're just geared to learn from all the things that could go wrong, all the bad situations. So, yes, every situation in the past, and I just mentioned one that a lot more went into this system that I built in my head. Be good, get love for it. And once I unraveled it, it kind of became clear, oh, it started here and then this situation added to it. And looking back, it was like maybe one situation in one school year, maybe another one in a second school year, but those are like burned into me and they still influence me every day 
and you needed to step away from them and then just bring, as you said, what I have today and measure yourself the same way as you would someone else. And sometimes to speak to yourself can help. That you literally, and it sounds funny to do that, but that you literally say to yourself, I'm a bit disappointed in myself that I can't do the same back squat as I could 10 years ago when all I did was train. And it sounds really stupid now when you say it out loud. But those things in your head, they can go round and round and you never judge them to be stupid or kind of not be anywhere close to something you would say to a friend or even an acquaintance. It doesn't even have to be a friend. You would never say that to someone. But you do say it at least in your head to yourself. And sometimes just speaking it out loud shows you how ridiculous it actually is. If people would talk to themselves the way they talk to their friends, I think they would feel a lot better about themselves and maybe learn to be a good friend to themselves, which is a, a big, big step for a lot of people. Linda, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we have a hard stop coming up in a couple of minutes. I want to make sure we get all of your plugs in. Where can people find the you? Where should they go Instagram? to learn more about Linda? Handle at Linda Morgi with M-O-R-G-I. And I think that's where I'm most active. And if you want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a message over there. And I strongly suggest following Linda. It's lots of fun. She's also pretty funny, which is a thing I'm not very good at doing on Instagram. So it is worthwhile. And there's a lot of educational gems thrown in there around mindset, movement, pain, all kinds of other things. Linda Morgenthaler, thank you so much for coming on the Feel Strong podcast. This was wonderful. Thank you, Justin. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to the Feel Strong Fitness Podcast. If you want to reach out about solving your fitness problems, find us on Instagram at feelstrongfit. You can also apply to get started now on our website, feelstrong.me. Subscribing, rating, and sharing this podcast is an enormous help and has more impact than you know. Thank you for doing that if you can. If you feel stuck, if you know where you want to go, but you aren't sure how to get there, reach out. It's what we do.